Physical lock-in is easy to understand. In Australia, a combination of would-be 19th century robber barons and chaotic governance among the then-independent Australian states resulted in the middle-gauge muddle. Regional rail systems chose different track widths, which means that even today, you can't get a single train all the way across the country. Instead, its freight or passengers have to be unloaded at the intersection of each rail system and reloaded onto a train that's compatible with the next segment of rail. The middle gauge metal has proven nearly impossible to undo. Over some 150 years, hundreds of designs for multi-track rail cars have been tried and discarded as the mechanical complexity of retracting one set of wheels and dropping another has frustrated all efforts to engineer a reliable low-cost system. In the end, Australia solved this problem by embarking on a decades-long project to tear up thousands of kilometers of rails and replace them with standard gauges. But digital lock-in is an entirely different matter. Digital computers are possessed of a nearly mystical property of universality. All of them can run every formally correct program. The very earliest digital computers can run the same programs as your laptop, albeit those early monsters might take billions of years to complete the work your laptop does in an eye blink. Your smart coffee maker can run the same programs as your printer, which can run the same programs as the processor in your Wi-Fi router, which can run the same programs as the processor in a $5 no-name Chinese TV playback device the size of a pack of gum for, the, for sale at your local flea market, albeit at very different speeds. Speed, 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 speed. April 2019 was a bad month to be a talent agent in Hollywood. Phone calls, emails and texts flowed in, tones ranging from accusatory to apologetic. Within days, it was done. 7,000 Hollywood writers had fired their agents. The talent agent's role is to set up meetings at which clients pitch their work, then negotiate terms and seal the deal. Traditionally, agents take a 10% commission on the price of the job, which aligned their interests with those of their clients. The more the client earned, the bigger the agent's paycheck. As in every other culture industry we've looked at, talent agencies have consolidated into a few big firms. The giants are William Morris Endeavor, WME, and Creative Artists Agency, CAA, both now part-owned by part private equity. Together with the much smaller United Talent Agency, UTA, and ICM Partners, they make up the big four agencies. As this book goes to press, CAA is trying to swallow up ICM, threatening to concentrate the industry still further. Between them, these agencies represent nearly all the most bookable writers, actors and directors in the US film and TV industries. That gives them a great deal of power. And, just like every corporation that gets strong enough to do so, they use it to further their own interests. In this instance, that involved a con called packaging. The consolidated agencies had huge portions of Hollywood talent on their rosters and over decades had come to increasingly sell their clients' services to studios as packages, bundling together the key actors, writers and director for each project. These clients, the talent, were told this was good news because their agents would no longer charge them that 10% commission. Instead, the agencies charged packaging fees to the studio, usually a hefty upfront fee a further lump sum when the show achieved net profits, and then a percentage of gross profits for the lifetime of the show. This practice uncoupled agent compensation from what their clients got paid. Rather than settling for a measly 10%, 
agencies discovered that they were able to negotiate to get more than their clients. For example, CAA's packaging fee on Cold Case was $75,000 per episode, more than writer and creator Meredith Steam received during its first two seasons. Overall, she estimates that the agency made 94 cents on every dollar she earned from the show. That's a far cry from the customary 10% fee that's still charged by smaller agencies. The conflict of interest is obvious. Movie and TV studios also have a great deal of power. If they're giving away fees of this magnitude, it's because they're getting something in return. The Writers Guild of America, WGA, has alleged that agencies now routinely refuse to negotiate greater salaries for staff writers, instead taking the first offer to protect their own fees. Chip Johansson, who's written for shows like 24, Moonlight and Beverly Hills 90210, says ICM pressured him to give up benefits that he was contractually entitled to because there otherwise wasn't enough money to get his show made. Later on, he found out that it also extracted a substantial packaging fee with a more favourable profit definition, deliberately enriching itself at his expense. Grey's Anatomy showrunner Krista Vernoff says her entertainment lawyer friends have endless stories about agents asking them to take the lead in aggressive writer negotiations because the agents are afraid to anger their agency bosses. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 194 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we we are very excited to be joined once again by returning champion Corey Doctorow and first time, uh, but very excited to have Rebecca Giblin on the pod at last. Rebecca, we're in we're in the same town. We're just like right across the river from each other, I imagine. Um, I'm I'm down at Monash. You're down up at University of Melbourne. Um, yeah, so I, it's amazing we've never run into each other. Kind of ridiculous, yeah. But we're gonna have to now. <laughs> uh, well, we the 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 occasion to have Corey and Rebecca on TMK is the release of their fantastic new book, Choke Point Capitalism: How Big Tech and Big Content Captured Creative Labor Markets and How We'll Win Them Back. So, I mean, people familiar with Corey and Rebecca's work will not be surprised at all by the subject of the book, you know, really just a critical analysis with uh, a, a range of great recommendations for how to change intellectual property regimes, the kind of labor markets around creative and artistic works. But th this book is, I think, in a lot of ways, a, a, a kind of magnum opus, a one-stop shop for uh, all of the, the work I know both of you have been doing for a very long time, and all of it just really kind of succinctly uh, and, and beautifully summarized in one place. Well, that's very kind. I think you're right about the, the idea that this is a kind of um, capstone of two long careers in trying to explain why just giving creators more copyright isn't going to fix anything and has lots and lots of collateral damage uh, and um, actually can make things worse for creators as well. And, you know, it's a hard argument to make. Like, it's a complicated one. Like, copyright is this super technical subject digital platforms are a super technical subject, the way arts markets and labor markets work are super technical subjects. Not a lot of people get all of them and putting them all together and trying to like make coherent arguments out of them requires something book length. But I think we did it and I think we managed to make it um, 
pretty pretty digestible. You know, a lot of the scammiest stuff happening in arts markets is just like it lo- makes financial derivatives look completely normal and easy to understand. It's just this like crazy obfuscated. You know, it's not it's not uh, um, it's not hard to understand because it's complicated. It's complicated, so it'll be hard to understand. Kind of uh, contractual arrangements and industrial arrangements. And so we, we, we try to unwind those, but not to the point where you're like, your eyes are glazing over. We, we let you understand it. We give some kind of, I guess, like, uh, exemplary examples, you know, we pick each sector and we give you one example of how the scam works. There are similar scams in every sector. We choose one from each one. And then what we really dig into is like, what could you do to unrig these crazy rigged markets? Yeah, there's to some degree, you know, there's complexity. And as you're reading the book, you can decide how much you want to engage with that. We actually warn you in a couple of places, like we're about to get really into the weeds here. Like if you want to skip this bit, go ahead. But what I think is really clear is that creators are getting choked. They're sharing less and less in the rewards from their work. That's happening because these powerful corporations, whether it's big tech or big content, are extracting much more than their fair share of value that the reason they're able to do that is because they create these choke points and the current systems just are not working to help us deal with that, Um, but that we don't have to put up with it. Like ultimately, this is a really hopeful book, uh, which I think is the thing um, that makes it a little bit different from a lot of what else is out there. Absolutely. I mean, to that point, and we'll we'll get to all of it for sure, but, you know, the book is broken up into two parts. And unlike a lot of books of this kind, including my own, where, you know, it's kind of the last chapter is the here's what we can do about it chapter. You have the last half is the here's what we should do about it half of the book, um, which is great. I mean, I think that that's really says something to how much you've thought about this and how much you've thought about a multi-pronged diversity of tactics kind of way of of fixing what is uh, from top to bottom a a supremely fucked up uh, system. I mean, like, I I know like Ed and I are are deeply familiar with these kinds of monopolies and monopsonies and choke points and things like that in, you know, the tech sector and finance and these other sectors. What I know about the arts markets and creative markets is, you know, what I hear, like when the unionizing was happening during the pandemic, and that was a a lot of reporting um, by like people, you know, friend of the show, Alex Press, and people were doing a lot of reporting on that. And so just kind of starting to hear some of it. But, you know, you have a number of case studies in the book that go really in depth into, you know, into music streaming, into YouTube, into, uh, you know, uh, copyright for authors and licensing work and things like that and and at every step I was I was really blown away at how how concentrated how uh, exploitative how yeah just supremely fucked up it is and how much we don't talk about uh, this this sector as a uh, you know exemplary and in sometimes a, an exaggerated version of the monopolies and choke points we see other places Yeah, you know, I think that um, creative arts markets are especially, uh, or creative labor markets rather, especially cursed. Because, you know, the old joke, like that the kid runs away and joins the circus and the dad finds him shoveling elephant shit and he says, son, come home. And the kid looks at the pile of elephant shit and has has his shovel and says, what, and leave show business? You know, people (laughs) people make art because they can't stop, right? And so, yeah, they're like people who drive Uber because it's the only choice they have, right? 
But if you gave them another choice, they might stop driving Uber. There are a lot of writers, you'd have to break their fingers to make them stop. And, you know, the, the, the people who are buying that creative labor absolutely know it and they act accordingly. And so that you get these uniquely exploitative arrangements that, that arise out of art. So in that way, they're kind of a good microcosm for, for all of this stuff. I also think that the creative arts battles are kind of ground zero for a certain kind of shell game that's played with workers where, you know, in the, in the internet copyright fights, you've had this uh, long running kind of bait and switch where they've said, you know, your job as someone who's got a dog in this fight is to choose whether you're on team tech or team entertainment. And, you know, those two, like, titans are going to wrestle with each other. And if your champion wins, they will drop more crumbs off of their table for you, right? And the, the, we just had this kind of excluded middle of, like, what about not having a market that's structured by, like, a couple of giant companies, right? What about, you know, autonomy, like, creative and, and uh, labor autonomy, and that playbook is now everywhere, right? Like, what do you want to do? Do you want to drive for the corrupt taxi medallion cartel? Or do you want to drive for Uber, right? Which one of those is going to give you the most crumbs? How about neither, right? How about like, we, we don't have to have a speculative market in taxi medallions. And also, <laughs> we don't have to have, you know, Travis Kalanick shambling, unprofitable zombie taking over uh, all of our transit markets. And that's exactly where this book was born, um, right near that river that you were talking about, Jathan, at the beginning. Corey and I were in a taxi together. It was, I think, uh, early 2018. And we just were both railing about this. Like, why is the choice big tech or big content, right? They're both awful. And like the more power they get, the more that they will use that to squeeze people until their shareholders um, and their executives get nearly everything and the creators get nothing. And so we were just wanting to fundamentally reject that. And it got us thinking, well, what can we have instead? And how do we get there? Yeah. And and I, I mean, I think a lot of it really, really boils down to those power asymmetries, right? And, and, and taking advantage of, you're exactly right. You know, people that drive for Uber or do gig economy work, it's not because it's like their first choice, right? There is a power asymmetry going on where, you know, the, they're, they, they don't have as much power in the labor market. And so they're having to depend on these, you know, vultures that will scoop them up. Uh, and, and we see very similar things happening in arts and creative labor markets, but there is that added, uh, little asymmetry there as well that, uh, people love what they do. And so that's another kind of a vector of exploitation because you can, you know, say, well, well, if you love what you do, then you shouldn't have to be paid for. It. And I think, you know, academics, uh, you know, Rebecca and I have probably seen this in academia a lot in terms of like, you know, if you, well, you get into academia because it's, you know, as, as Max Weber would call it, it's a vocation. It's a, you know, it's, it's not a profession. It's a vocation. It's a calling. You get into it because you want to teach and you want to research. And I think that is even more like, uh, cranked up. So, I mean, I think Rebecca and I see this in academia, right? Where it's, you know, it's a vocation, you know, it's called a vocation. It's not a profession. It's this, it's this calling. You do it because you, you love it. You want to 
teach people, you want to do research. And so that means you can work 60 or 70 hours a week on a 35 hour a week salary because you would be doing it anyways, right? We're, what we pay you is more like a gratuity uh, than a salary. And I, and I think that's even more amplified when we're talking about um, creative works like, you know, art, you know, uh, writing, uh, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and, and that then contributes to, I want to get to some of the key concepts in the book before we get into some of the more specific case studies. But I think that power asymmetry there uh, really contributes to a, a creation of monopsony. Um, uh, and so we know what monopoly is, and I'm sure monopsony might be familiar to some of our wonkier listeners, but this is really a kind of core dynamic um, that you explore in the book. So uh, I'll, I'll throw it over to Rebecca. Um, Rebecca, could you just explain what is monopsony versus monopoly? Yeah, like we all know about Monopoly because there's a board game for that, right? You've got this, uh, you've got basically you've got a seller that's got a lot of power over buyers. So you might think about Apple and Google's strangleholds over a consumer in the market for cell phone software. You've got to go to their, their app stores because you can't really get it anywhere else. Monopsony is where it's the buyer that's got power over sellers. Um, and so again, you can go back to Apple and Google strangleholds, um, but this time over software developers in the same market, they can't really sell it anywhere else. Um, and monopsony is really, really interesting. We see it everywhere. Um, in Australia, we see it very much uh, in the, the two big supermarket chains who've got enormous amount of power over their suppliers, over the farmers and the manufacturers who... Um, who, who provide the groceries that they on-sell to consumers. Um, but you, you see it increasingly in a number of markets, and the U.S. has got monopsonized to a degree um, where you, you, you're, you're, you're seeing it, and we've written about it in the book, like from cheerleading uniforms to wrestling to eyeglasses, like it's just everywhere. Um, and in, monopsony is inherently more difficult to control, and it, it becomes a problem at much lower concentrations than monopoly. Um, and so what, when, um, when, you, when you've got uh, an issue with buyer power, which is what monopsony is, the people who are most affected are the workers and the suppliers. And so in the case of creative labor markets, that's the creators. And like you said, uh, Jathan, what happens in these cases is that people's passion is weaponized to facilitate their exploitation. Um, the, the 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 really critical thing to understand, and like it is really technical, like you said, I'm happy to like go into it in a little bit more uh, detail. But the critical thing is that that when when companies achieve that, which they do at those lower concentrations, that's what allows them to extract much more value than what would happen in a fair market. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right, and I and I think that it's also important to note that this is all by design. So you know the the way that we enforce antitrust changed a lot 40 years ago. It started under Reagan and they moved from this theory called harmful dominance, where if, if um, a company was doing something that could result in market concentration, the, the thing that the regulator would li listen to is would that market concentration would that dominance create some kind of harm? Like would they be able to pollute with impunity? Would they screw up local politics in the town where they would merge the two factories? Would they screw over workers? Would they raise prices? Would it hurt their supply chain? Right, like all of those things were kind of in scope. And uh, 
in the in the 70s, this weird, fabulous named Robert Bork, who was one of the Chicago school guys who'd been uh, Nixon's solicitor general and who was denied a seat on the Supreme Court when Reagan nominated him because his crimes under Nixon were so ghastly. He, uh, he wrote this crazy book called The Antitrust Paradox, which I happen to have a copy of right here for reasons maybe we can describe later. Rebecca and I are doing a stunt <laughs> with it. But... Uh, he wrote this book and it's like an it's like a weird like gnostic history of antitrust law he's like you know i know that when robert sherman wrote the sherman act and went on the floor of the senate and stumped about why they should pass it he said you know we should fear monopolies because companies shouldn't have that much power but he totally didn't mean it and if you like if you like just do like a kind of QAnon close read you know every other vowel right you will find that what congress really intended was that um, we should only be worried about when monopolies harm consumers in a very specific way, which is by raising prices. And not just like raising prices, but mathematically provably raising prices because they're a monopoly. Because maybe they raised prices after they merged because, uh, you know, oil prices went up or labor prices went up. Or, you know, the moon was in Venus or whatever, right? But not because, <laughs> not because they were a monopoly. Maybe the monopoly had nothing to do with it. You wouldn't want to punish them if they were like a good, efficient company that just got a bad beat. And so uh, under the standard that he developed, like all monopolies were fine. Monopolies that didn't raise prices, fine. Monopolies that did raise prices could provably be proved to not be raising prices because they were monopoly and it'd all be fine. The one thing that they that really they would catch you on is if like you just did like really obvious price gouging, right? If and and if you talked about it, uh, and that was the thing that companies got a little worried about. Uh, I remember when I was doing DRM standardization in the U.S. and trying to fight this thing called the broadcast flag. There was this multi-consortia meeting called the, the Broadcast Protection Discussion Group. And every meeting would open with a benediction from the Consumer Technology Association. This lawyer would stand up and say, uh, I remind you all here that we are not here to set prices. Right? And no one here should discuss prices and we are not here to set prices. Right? And that was like every week it was this like benediction. Literally, they called it the benediction. Right? Um, so if you're, if you're not allowed to raise prices on consumers in obvious ways, right, in blatant ways, the one way that you can realize monopoly profits is by screwing over your suppliers, right? If you're a monopsony as well as a monopoly, you can say to the people that supply your parts, we're going to pay you an unsustainably low rate for your stuff, which you see in like agriculture, Rebecca was talking about grocery stores here in America, we have this labor term called chickenization, which comes from the fact that there's three chicken packers, and they've divided up America, like the Pope dividing up the new world. And like, if you're a farmer, there's only one place you can sell your chickens. And they just set the price and they set all the conditions. They're like, these are the chicks you have to buy. This is the chicken house you have to buy. We're putting our garbage IoT thermostat and lights and we're going to control your lights for you. This is the vet you're allowed to use. This is the medicine they're allowed to give them. This is the feed you're allowed to give them. We're going to tell you all of that except for the price we're going to pay you. And then when you show up to sell your birds, we've got this like overview across the whole industry and we know exactly how little we can pay you so that you can roll over your debts and grow us another package uh, of chickens for next season. And that's what we're going to pay you to the penny, right? And, and that's, the, that's the design of consumer welfare antitrust is that you are supposed to hurt workers and suppliers because that's how consumers get lower prices. When Walmart sends uh, all of its production to China, and they start building suicide nets around the factories, 
that's a win under consumer welfare because consumer welfare is not about worker welfare. And so when you apply that to creative arts markets, you immediately see why, you know, <laughs> that you have labels who are squeezing their workers. You have studios that are squeezing their workers. You have publishers that are squeezing your workers as they merge. It gets worse. We just had this thing where, you know, Warner bought uh, discovery and then just canceled a bunch of shows for the, for the tax write-offs. I'm in the animators guild, just like there's just this stream of desperate emails from the animators guild saying, so you've lost your health insurance. What are you going to do now? Right. That's, that's fine under traditional theories of antitrust. And so, you know, this is this is the thing that I think is really changing now as we're starting to move beyond consumer welfareism. And it's what makes this book, I think, kind of timely is you have antitrust regulators breathing fire. I know you love Lena Khan. Uh, and uh, uh, there's also equivalence of the Consumer Markets Authority or the Competition Markets Authority in the US and the UK rather has uh, 80 full time engineers just to debullshitify the claims that big tech makes when they try to impose competition remedies on them. You have Marguerite Vestager in, in the European Union, again, who's like breathing fire. Like it's all over the world. The Chinese cyberspace regulation is on this, right? Like they're all like looking into this and going, oh no, this isn't good. Yeah, people are finally starting to notice this is dawning realization that, hang on a minute, okay, prices haven't gone up, but all of these workers are being squeezed so that their share is going down, which means they've got less money to spend on goods and services, which is exactly the same result as if prices went up. <laughs> and, right. And so that's the exciting thing, that we are noticing that these corporations are extracting more than they should be. And these really people who can do something about it are starting to say we really need to. But this sort of shift or this turn by corporations, you know, one with the the reluct refusal to actually enforce antitrust law and to then interpret it, interpret it on these Borkian terms and allow consumer welfare to flourish. But then also the you know the these corporations then restructuring America's political economy to encourage their exploitation of workers. We've seen and we've talked a bit about how that what that looks like in like agriculture. And oil production and in other parts of the economy. So then, how does that translate to cultural production, right? As, as you guys lay out in that first half of the book, I mean, the mechanisms that allow uh, large businesses to take over industries and in, in just in general. We talk a bit about how then this allows them to kind of, you know, uh, get a vice grip on on how culture is produced, imagined, disseminated, distributed you know, consumed in this country. In other words, what are the choke points? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's pretty straightforward in publishing. I think Rebecca, maybe you can do uh, Spotify because, because you're, you're, you're chapter and verse on that in publishing. It's really straightforward. There used to be dozens of publishers. Then there were six, then there were five. There's about to be four. They all have the same set of terms. The terms are terrible. They, uh, they, you know, non, non-negotiably want to take your audiobook rights and your ebook rights and your, uh, worldwide English rights and sometimes your foreign translation rights and your, sometimes your graphic novel rights. These are all things you could just sell, right? So this is like each one of those is, you know, several months worth of groceries that you don't get and that they get. Uh, and, you know, that the, uh, they make you indemnify them. They uh, put less publicity into your book. You spend more out of your pocket to promote your book. 
um, you are uh, more likely to be locked into a multi-book deal that they can cancel, but you can't uh, if you get a better offer from someone else. So, you know, just in, in every way that when there's fewer buyers for your work, things get worse. And, you know, there's, there's five, soon to be four trade publishers that sell through a single distributor, Ingram, that bought out its competitors' uh, trade distribution deal last, last year, the year before Baker and Taylor. They sell to one national book chain, Barnes & Noble, and one online bookseller, Amazon, right? Like, those are the choke points right there. <laughs> those are the choke points. But Spotify is way more interesting because it's super Baroque. So I don't know, uh, can, you, can you do it off the top of your head because it is so weird? Yeah, well, look, there's a lot to it, but there's a couple of points that I think are particularly fiendish and interesting. Um, one of them is, and like a lot of us will be guilty of this, I'll admit that I still sometimes use these, even though I know exactly what's happening. Um, so Spotify's playlists, right? It's really easy to go in and like you've got a mood or a vibe or you're like, you know, when I'm writing, I really like to do that to just like some like deep dub or deep house, like something super bassy. And it's a really, really easy way to find that thing that you're looking for. But what we're doing when we um, rely on Spotify's playlists is we're outsourcing to them the power to decide what we listen to. And when we outsource to them the power to decide what we listen to, we're allowing them to create a choke point between creators on one side and audiences at the other. And what they do with that, and you know, um, and they're doing it with music, but they're also increasingly doing that um, by trying to set up these bigger programs of listening that include podcasts um, and, and other material. What that allows them to do is to mediate that access. Um, and we all know that the royalties that, that Spotify um, pays out, are, you know, pretty small for a lot of artists. And what they're doing with this power is to say, well, hey, uh, if you know, we understand you want exposure, we understand you don't really have enough money to pay for it up front. But you know, if you like, we can help you out by um, you know, considering you for playlists and you know, giving you a special treatment under the algorithm if you accept you know, just a discounted royalty even on that really low rate. And then you've got artists who are just like, well, I'm, I'm making bugger all anyway. So half of bugger all is still bugger all. It seems like a, it seems like a deal I should take because everybody believes that they might be the one that's going to break through. Okay. And so then they accept the lower amount, which then causes everybody else to say, oh my God, now we're not being playlisted. We're getting disfavored by the algorithm. We also need to accept less. And so it's a race to the bottom. So that's one of the tricks uh, that they use. Another thing, um, and this is a bit wonkier, and this is one of the places where we really get into the weeds, um, is that the international music licensing system is just fiendishly complicated. Like it just, it just doesn't make any sense. I nearly tore my, I nearly tore my hair out getting my head around this as best I possibly could in writing this section of the book. Jason, I don't know if you made your way through it, uh, that chapter trying to explain how music licensing works. Okay. But there's no way if we set out to make a music licensing system from scratch today that it would look anything like what we've got here. Uh, so it's super expensive, super difficult to enter the market on. So you need really deep pockets to do so. Um, and uh, a lot of the money kind of leaks out at various points along the way. The leakage is extraordinary. And Spotify complains about that. They say, yeah, yeah, it's really complicated. It's really slowing down our growth. 
Now, sure, it does slow down Spotify's growth, but it also protects them by keeping so many other possible entrants out of the market. So there are so many people who are passionate about music, passionate about artist rights, would love to get in here and do it differently. But the enormous startup costs mean that Spotify and those competitors in big tech are basically the only people that can be, you know, participating in this market in any kind of any kind of meaningful way. And that's another way um, in which they they maintain this power that allows them to extract so much. Yeah, I mean, I will just say, like, I I did work my way through it. I could not tell you off the top of my head about how music licensing works. But one point you made um, in that section is that you know, and and it, and it applies to a lot of the the different markets and and con, and, rela- and contractual relationships you uh, both analyze in the book. But that these things are not complex because they're complicated. They're complex by design, right? They're complex to keep you, right? They're not, they're not hard to understand because they're complex. They're complex to make them hard to understand is how you put it in the book. And, and that really resonates. I know, you know, the things that we talk about on TMK and we've made this exact point with other areas like financial instruments or like my what I am obsessed with now um, is insurance and insurance technology uh, and and a, a lot of these things are exactly that these are like they are extremely esoteric really complex and complicated as a way of signaling to you stay away don't try to get into the weeds on this don't even try to wrap your head around it leave it to us and and that's exactly what seems like it's happening here in the the uh not just with spotify and music licensing but um and i mean that seems like a particularly baroque case but all of it is really is really organized around that well, I was just going to say, every time you're railing against injustice or you're just like, it just doesn't make sense that it works like this, I always think of that, that famous quote from the systems theorist Stafford Beer, the purpose of a system is what it does. And that's exactly the case with all of this. Yeah, I, I, I like uh, the, the term from the finance industry, uh, Migo or Mego, which is uh, my eyes glaze over. And it's kind of when you know you've hit like the right degree of complexity in your uh, in your synthetic CDO, so that no one's going to be able to figure out if it's garbage or not. <laughs> you know, I will say that the 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 two chapters you have in here about streaming and then about Spotify were the two tra- chapters that I did read because um, those are constant conversations I have with people all the time when they ask me why I haven't put any of my music on any of the streaming services. When I say just send me an email, I'll send you a, I'll send you a, a wave file. I'll send you a flag. I'll send you whatever you want. I'll just send it to you. I'm not putting anything on it because I don't want to deal with that. I've had friend musician friends that have encountered the same issues where Spotify, you know, will 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 if you take a couple of uh, percentages off of what we would give you, we'll put you on these specialized playlists as a means to like, you know you know, get you a couple, what, uh, 20 extra listen, 20,000 extra listens, which doesn't really amount to anything. Um, I mean, I, I know this, and this might be a, a, a topic for a future book for you, uh, Corey, but maybe, maybe we'll have a future where the AI that does all the, uh, AI driven music and AI driven art is actually out of work musicians and artists who are forced to do this because they still want to have, have that creative outlet, but can't make a living doing it. 
Well, there's that there's that old joke that AI stands for absent Indians because the the actual AI is someone in a Pacific call center being paid a small number of rupees to do a, a boring task. Yeah, I, I I mean I think that's right. I, I the other insidious thing about playlists that I think a lot of people miss is that um, a playlist is a way to change user behavior so that rather than looking for an artist, they go to the playlist where they found the artist and then the artist can be pushed out. And one of the things about Spotify is it's filled with these uh, playlists that are sort of super high listened. Uh, Rap caviar is the big one. And that every now and again, when you listen to them, you get an artist you've never heard of. And these artists all turn out to be Swedish and they all turn out to be making works made for hire that are sound alikes. Yeah, these don't appear so much on Rap Caviar, but like all of the ambient playlists, which are sold to us as, uh, you know, just uh, relax your life. If everything's very stressful, what you need is this ambient, chill kind of music. That's going to solve the problems caused by the fact that everybody is massively tweaked by a warming climate, <laughs> a lack of money, increasing precarity. You just need some chill. That's where we're really seeing those mystery artists um, appear. Um, who turn out to be getting paid like you know less than any of the nothing that everybody else is getting. Uh, but I, with, when we talk about music, I just want to make sure, and we talk about choke points. I want to make sure that we're not just lumping on 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 Spotify because there's so much blame to go around here. Um, the big record labels, which own the big music publishers, have got heaps of blame as well. Um, they are the ones that you know they licensed these uh, streaming platforms, they shaped the market and made sure that it worked this way. They do disproportionately well out of this compared to the the independent um, labels and music publishers as well. Uh, and they've got a different kind of choke point uh, that gave them the power to do that. They've got these reservoirs of rights uh, that they've acquired over decades, often not from actually investing in the artists the way that they, they like to talk about that the way that they like to talk about doing, but by buying up rights very cheaply from distressed companies um, and then adding that to their reservoir until the point that they control so much of the world's popular music that they've got the right to set terms. And because these copyright transfers are so long, copyrights uh, you know, for most works last the, the artist's lifetime plus another 70 years after that, when you've got enough of them, even if you're no longer the way that makes sense to distribute content, you've still got the power to do it because you're going to have these rights for decades and decades and decades longer. There's a there's a, the, a quick point I wanted to add to what you just said. There was a artist named Aaliyah that died in 2001, and famously, a lot of her music was unavailable on streaming platforms for years. Because the record label, knowing that she's no longer alive, just kept pumping out reissues of CDs or compilations or reissues or remasters because people were buying those CDs because it wasn't available in streaming. Do you think that the the fact that this was an artist obviously was had passed and these record labels still had the masters? And of course, record labels have a history of making making millions when an artist dies. I mean, look at print. What happened with Prince? Uh, David Thank Bowie, you. you know, you had all these artists when they die, all their, all their stuff just flooded the market. Um, and you're getting less and less like holdouts now. Uh, the, uh, I guess the main point of the question I was looking to maybe suss out, do you think that the streaming platforms in the end are going to win out and 
that's going to be the only way we're going to get music going forward. That maybe physical media is probably on the way out just for the simplicity. That sounds like a good bridge to the kind of solutions half of the book. I always hate calling this solution. I feel like if Guinea Morozov was going to show up and slap me, <laughs> but um, they are, I mean, they're not complete solutions. They are ways to, we, you know, one of the metaphors that we organize the book around or principles we organize the book around is how Amazon talks about what it does. They talk about this thing called the flywheel where they say, you know, we have uh, we have lower prices, which brings in more consumers, which brings in more merchants, which brings in uh, more merchandise, which brings in more consumers, which makes the prices lower and so on. And it's a flywheel and it goes faster and faster and faster. Another way of thinking about that is like we trap consumers on one side with prime subscriptions and habitual behaviors and by eroding the retail that is available to them that's not amazon and then we force suppliers to sell to us on untenable terms and sometimes just go and steal their business by spying on them and cloning their products and then that brings in more customers who we entrap with prime again and and so on and so on and what we're interested in is like we don't think you can um there's just like the one magic intervention the one weird trick that just makes the flywheel stop Right? You, you make the flywheel stop by adding friction to it. And we have a bunch of, when we say we have solutions, what we mean is we have ways to add friction to the monopsony that will then lubricate things to continue this unfortunate metaphor for the anti-monopsony forces and make it make it easier for the, the pro-competitive flywheel to speed up and build some inertia. That's better than lubrication. Inertia. Yeah, I, I will say before before uh, I, I let Rebecca jump in, uh, one of the things that really struck me is, in, I think it was in the last chapter where you talked about somebody had told you the book is not marketable because all of your solutions are systemic, not individual. And, and <laughs> and on the flip side of that, I'd say uh, the book would not be on TMK if all of your solutions were like, uh, you know, just just buy, you know, do ethical consumerism uh, at the individual level. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, these are like the, the, the flywheel builds up momentum the, the the faster and longer it spins and to stop it to to hit those brakes requires all of us uh to to kind of change the conditions to add that friction not not each of us taking turns standing in front of the flywheel and saying stop and then uh getting rolled over and then it rolls over the next person and the next person <laughs> i think i slowed it down <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was going to say, like, in terms of understanding the solutions, like, we've sort of, we've jumped right in, um, kind of assuming that everyone knows what we talk about, or what we mean when we're talking about these choke points, but maybe I could just unpack that a little, because I think that really helps explain the solutions, and while they, they cover a lot of different uh, aspects, um, that's the uniting principle. So, you know, if you've got a competitive market, it should look like a pipe, right, with value flowing freely between the, the buyers and the sellers. But what these corporations are doing is they're like squeezing those pipes until they take on an hourglass shape. Um, and that, that's where you've got that, that bit where you've got creators at one end and audiences at the other, and then these corporations controlling access. Um, when a company controls a choke point like that, they control the livelihoods of creative workers. Okay, but what happens is these corporations squeeze those pipes right? And so um, they take on that hourglass shape and you've got creators at one end, audience at the other, and then mediating access in the middle. Um, and that's what gives them the ability to control the livelihoods of creators. And what once you understand the problem that way, then the solutions start to become clear. What we need to do is widen those choke points out. 
And so that's what we're doing in that whole second half of the book. We're looking at these different markets and we're seeing what are the interventions that can be made in order to do that. And there's so many different ones um, that that actually have really exciting potential. Um, one of them, I think, for example, is transparency. Right? Transparency already would do an enormous amount to help like widen out those choke points. Recording an um, artist, for example, often have absolutely no right to find out how their royalties are calculated. Like imagine that, like you're, you've got no right to find out the way in which your paycheck is calculated and you don't know how much it's going to be. Um, Niall Rogers, he's talked about how every single time he's audited record labels, he's found money and sometimes a staggering amount of money. Um, and it's really hard to fight an opponent when you don't know what it looks like. So transparency gives us something to mobilize against. Um, we've seen it with the Audible Gate scandal, which to me is one of the most enraging um, examples that we go through in the book, where we have these independent authors that were getting completely screwed by Audible, but they successfully organized against them once there was a data glitch that showed how much they were being unfairly charged for returns. And so, you know, that's, that's one example. We think about ways in which we can introduce transparency. It's really not that radical. We already require corporations to disclose certain information for the benefit of shareholders. Okay, maybe it is radical. What if we required them to do that for the benefit of workers too? It's very radical. Um, but, you know, that's, that's one of the kinds of things. Um, but, you know, there's so many other ways of um, widening out these, these choke points. Um, and like we say, structural changes to support creators around interoperability mandates, um, putting time limits on contracts, having minimum wages for creative work, um, and you know, changing the rules so that individuals and small corporations have the right to band together to protect their, their interests collectively. These are all interventions that will widen out those choke points and actually help us achieve real change. Yeah, it's amazing how... Um minor technical details make an enormous amount of difference in terms of what they deliver. So there's an area where Rebecca is an absolute expert, which is copyright termination, which is the idea that after a certain number of years, no matter what your contract says, you can just say, I get my copyrights back and file some paperwork and you get it. It's extraordinarily hard to use, but when creators use it, they do really well. So Rebecca did this huge, um, a uh, huge uh, empirical study, the first big empirical study of, of who's used it. Stephen King's taken a bunch of his old books back. George Clinton got all of his compositions back. Uh, and the best one is that the Babysitter's Club and uh, um, Sweet Valley High books were all terminated by the women who wrote them. So now if you've got, you know, tween girls in your lives who are reading those books, that money's just going straight to them and not to their publishers. But it's super hard to use. So Rebecca, one of the things that you do in the book is you dig into the like technical deficits in invoking this right that should otherwise be there. And if it were just a little easier, you could like tomorrow just make a whole ton of heritage creators, people who signed terrible deals 35 years ago, a lot richer. Yeah, absolutely. When they first proposed this US termination law, it came from the copyright office and they're just like, what if after 20 years after the transfer, creators will just automatically get their rights back. And then there are these really, really extraordinary historical transcripts uh, that show how the uh, representatives and the major rights holders managed to uh, water this proposal down until now you do have to be standing in a moonlit meadow at midnight, you know, on one leg and, you know, 
the, the, the technical requirements for actually exercising them are extraordinary, uh, where, you know, most creators don't have the, um, the financial wherewithal to, to go ahead and take action to test these. Anyone that actually does, and there have been some high profile artists who've done it, they almost inevitably go to settlements so that there's no precedent that any other artist can use in order to be able to figure out what their rights are. Um, and, and these, again, these are ways in which these, these corporations maintain their power. But, you know, I talked about with those, the big record labels, the fact that they've got one of the reasons they've got the ability to control the whole future of the music industry for decades is because of these, these rights reservoirs that last this long, you know, reversion rights, time limits on contracts, allowing people to get them back in certain circumstances that could really change the balance of power um, in a way that let in that new air and that new light and that new oxygen and created a more, you know, artist friendly system for, for getting people paid for their music. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really comes out in, in the book and, you know, just constantly being uh, floored and flabbergasted at, uh, at, at how these systems actually work, you know, being unfamiliar with the kind of, you know, political economy and the finances of how artists, you know, get paid or, or rather don't get paid, right? And, you know, even things like the 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 kind of indentured servitude contracts that record labels keep, uh, you know, musicians under was absolutely you know just baffling to me you know the idea that you you know, you may be a really really popular artist not to say the you know the long tail of all the other artists who are moderately or 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 just kind of minimally popular and even if you're that really really popular artist you may never make money from your uh, from your music because you are you know paying back debt to the record label for decades upon decades upon decades because, you know, they have done that kind of uh, radical accounting where every, you know, every sandwich that you ate at a at a meet at a at an industry meeting or or something like that, you know every every Coca Cola can that you took when you visited the offices uh, that goes on your tab um, to the record label, right? Like I, I you know, just having no idea that 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 it was uh uh you know really really that like the the weaponization of accounting here um, by the record labels was really quite something to learn about. Yeah, can I just jump in there? Because I, I, I want to like I know we've really dunked on the the labels a bit during this um, this talk, but actually the experience of what's happened with that shows us why we can be hopeful about the possibility of widening out choke points, because a lot of those abuses are from you know up until the early two thousands, and then in the early two thousands, uh, few musicians, um, the 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 floor fell out of the market. We had free-for-all kind of file sharing. People weren't paying for music anymore. But also, all of these alternatives for distribution suddenly emerged. Digital technologies in the internet 
really democratized the way that you could make and distribute music. Um, and once there was competition, even though they did have these these reservoirs of rights that still gave them a lot of power, in terms of signing up new people into this scheme, the big labels really had to change their practices. And so it has become much less unfair than it used to be because those technological changes, those alternatives, did widen out the choke points that had existed before. I, I want to talk a little about weaponized accounting as well. Um it's one of the areas that's you know become very hot all over the world is the question of um, newspapers and advertising and how newspapers uh, can pay for themselves and and whether or not you know Google and Facebook are stealing newspapers content and so on and this is another one of those things where, be, where we're mostly being asked to choose a titan to root for and you know is, do you want Rupert Murdoch to to be the in charge or you know or some like uh, aristocratic German family or or are you going to brief for like Google and and Apple News or or Facebook and you know, the actual people who do journalistic work are kind of forgotten in this debate, or to the extent that they're considered to have any interest, it's just that they're downstream of, of media companies. And what you actually see when you look at the way that tech interacts with media is that there are some grossly unfair things tech does to media, but they're not about stealing content, right? It's not, you know, allowing people on social media to paste links or uh, excerpts from articles. That's not what's costing newspapers all their money. What's costing newspapers all their money is that the ad duopoly has rigged the fucking ad market. And then the app duopoly has rigged the app market and half the money is disappearing into their pockets. That's what's actually like, it, it's not that they're stealing their content, they're stealing their money, which is, you know, on the it's kind of a hopeful thing because I don't know how you get people to stop talking about the news, right? Like if you don't talk about it, it's not the news, it's a secret, right? But I, I think we do have like a pretty good idea about how to stop companies from stealing each other's money. And, you know, if, if we just set up a system where we just say, oh, well, Google and Facebook, you're stealing content from the newspapers. We don't know exactly how, but you just have to give a couple of points off your top line to, to newspapers. Then you just set up a system where the newspapers are, are on the side of big tech staying big, because that's how they can continue to get a couple points off their balance sheet. Whereas if you unrig the ad markets so that you can get a fair deal on ads and and you know one of the nice things that you would get if you unrig the ad markets is you would scrape away those excess profits that they use to lobby against privacy laws so ads would stop being quite so goddamn creepy too if you do those two things then suddenly like people who have good things that are popular will make more money and creators will matter, right? The people who make the news will matter because if you write stories that are good, it will make a difference to the newspaper as opposed to if the newspaper just getting a stipend, like a universal basic income provided by Google, in which case the reporters are interchangeable, right? They're, they're content generation units. And I mean, this is really the, the, what you're alluding to here is the Australian news bargaining code, right? Which was really essentially that and in a lot of ways it gets to i mean it's it's part of that transparency that we were talking about as well just like can you just tell us a little bit about like how much you're making or what you're paying or 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 how much you're keeping for yourself just just a little sliver of information would be really helpful for us 
but they but they they fight so hard whether it's you know whether it is the you know Google and Facebook or the record labels or the publish the book publishers or whoever right where you know I didn't even know about this uh, this whole uh, you know uh, economy of auditing uh, these people right where you know if you're wealthy enough as an artist or you get together and you have a guild you can maybe afford to hire some high you know some lawyers who specialize in going through and doing this forensic accounting and, accountants. and as, yeah, yeah, these, yeah, lawyers, yeah, these accountants, accountants yeah. right? These accountants. And, uh, uh, and you, you mentioned that, you know, in almost every single case, what you, you had, you know, a quote from one, uh, one person whose firm specializes in this and has done what hundreds or more of these, uh, of these audits. And only in one case was it that the artist actually owed the, the, the label some money. In every other case, they were recovering, you know, five, six, seven figures of royalties that should have been going to the artist. And, and a lot of that gets to this, you know, the, the, the real power of a lot of these choke points and a lot of these monopsonies and these, you know, industries really comes down to the secrecy, right? It's like knowing the true name of God, you know, that's where the real power lies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the really, one of the, you know, it, and again, it's by design. People are prohibited from talking about the, the you know, the, the errors that they discover. You know, we had one example that we were told about six figure error, um, from a book uh, publisher, um, twice, uh, that came out. But in order to actually get that money, the author and the agent were forced to sign an NDA saying that they wouldn't tell anyone else about it. Okay, so there are heaps of other authors in that stable who could potentially have been affected by the same whatever went on that caused that to happen, but they don't know about it and so they can't do anything to recover it. Um, and so again, like this is one of the reasons why I think transparency is a super exciting. It, may, it might not sound... It might not sound that sexy, but I think it's got so much potential because, you know, a public shaming is one of the only things that is actually effective at getting um, corporations to change their behavior because that might actually affect their shareholder value in a way that they have to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, back to Audible and and speaking of forensic accountants, right? So Audible has these really uh, sus returns policies that allow... Uh, Audible to basically use the stuff that creators pay to make in their independent um, Audible platform, ACX, the, the self-serve platform where you can publish your own audiobooks. It allows them to use them as kind of loss leaders to bring people into the program. And then they they encourage people to return them and they give them refunds and they take it out of your royalties. So you're just, you're just getting nothing. In fact, you're getting negative sums some months. And it's all very obscure and it's very hard to tell what's going on. And they accidentally exposed the underlying accounting to one of their authors, who turns out to be a forensic accountant, who just went like, well, wait a second, that doesn't look right to me. And, uh, you know, forensic accountants, the, it's an exciting field. I, I, um, my next novel is the first volume in a trilogy about a crime-fighting forensic accountant who busts Silicon Valley scams. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing... Uh, uh, kind of job to have in this world because right now you have a lot of people on the other side of the forensic accountancy thing people whose job it is to obfuscate using numbers and unpicking what they've done is is a job in its own right this reminds me of a novel jeremy turned me on to and i know you've read Corey uh hinch 
by Natalie Walsh. Oh yeah, by by Zed Natalie. Yeah, she and I were in the same writers' workshop in Toronto. She's great. Sorry, sorry, Rebecca, you were gonna say. I was just not all heroes wear capes. Any uh, kids listening? Because your parents make you, uh, or because they're playing this in the car and you're just stuck, right? These are the kinds of jobs that you can actually go out and make a real difference. Because we need people to fight the obfuscation uh, with clarity and transparency. Yeah, one of the most fun things in writing this trilogy is that whenever I need an interlude, I just think of a scam and I'm like, oh, I got another free, I picked up another freelance job. And this time it was, you know, <laughs> a research in motion founder who realizes that he's not getting any more Crackberry money. And he's got some other guy who's, who's uh, he invested in and $3 million disappeared. And he thinks that uh, he thinks it went up the guy's nose and he wants me to run it down. And then I just, just get to like nerd out about accountancy for like a paragraph as a bridging paragraph between two scenes. It's really fun. This is why this is why you're the perfect uh, guest and 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 listener of TMK, Corey. Because what you're doing with accounting, I'm currently doing with uh, actuarial insurance. science and insurance. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, my grandfather sold life insurance door to door for 45 years, uh, and so I, uh, whenever I hear you talking about insurance, I hear echoes of the because he used to be very adamant that I not get rooked. It was like, this is the insurance that's good. Don't get the other kind. <laughs> now that we're talking about choke points to kind of walk through some of the, the guiding principles that should inform or, or some or structure some of the interventions against uh, choke points. I mean, like we've you know, been talking about the need for transparency. We've been needing to talk about like pushing back against you know, some of the copyright uh, laws and the ability of some of these companies to just, you know, use this creative accounting to, to you know, scam you out of your earnings. Um, but if we're zooming out also for, for creative markets in general, I mean, what sort of approaches uh, should people have in mind or when they're thinking of alternatives or maybe even thinking about how to avoid certain labor markets? Um if they're or if they're curious about like how the, a certain labor market works and they realize it's not something they want to support, I mean, like how can we get to um, some of the some of the prospects that you talk about in these later chapters? Well, I mean, I think in terms of designing um, inter or as a litmus test for an intervention, because you know the interventions are they're they're highly technical, right? Because we're talking about technical structured esoteric markets. Some of them generalize, you know, transparency is good in, all the time, but some transparency doesn't get you nothing, right? Sometimes transparency just tells you how badly you're getting screwed. Uh, transparency needs to be paired with the uh, capacity for action. So in terms of like high level principles that uh, you can you can use to evaluate any proposal and say, does this does this seem adequate? The first one I think should be to assume that irrespective of what sector a firm is in, if it has the power to squeeze its supply chain, it will. And so to not say, oh, well, you know, we should, we should move the locus of control over workers' uh, outcomes from tech to entertainment because they'll be better, or from entertainment to tech because they'll be better, which was the story about Napster, right? Well, post-Napster, we're going to be able to give people a better deal because tech leaders are good-natured slobs, not like those venal record executives, right? Uh, and so irrespective of the, of the firm or the sector or even the leadership, you should assume that if they can, they will. Even if there's, I mean, even if there's a, a there is a good natured slob running the business, even if it's Tony Sher or someone, you know, eventually they're going to drop dead or have a hostile takeover or sell the company or 
whatever, you know, um, I just saw Robert Reich talking to the founder of Whole Foods, who was saying, you know, well, there is not a monopoly, like there is a competitive market. That's why we don't need uh, controls in this. And, and Reich turns to him and says, you know, you sold your company to a monopolist, right? And he just has this kind of like this, this kind of blank look. So, you know, even, even good bosses might be, might sell the company to a bad boss or drop dead and their idiot children run the business or whatever. And then the second is to assume that, um, the way that you check that power, you build countervailing power is with worker solidarity and, you know, getting a little off the, the specific of this question. One of the things that, it, that is at the end of this book, spoiler, that, that I talk about a lot is this thing that our friend James Boyle came up with, um, which is the, the history of the term ecology and how it relates to other struggles. And Jamie says that before the term ecology came along, some people cared about like owls and other people cared about the ozone layer, but it wasn't really clear that if you were into like charismatic nocturnal avians and I cared about the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere, that we were fighting the same fight. But when we, when we realized that both of these were ecological struggles, we, we found a way to turn this, the issues into a movement and the kind of choke points and the kind of monopsonistic labor markets and the, the um, e exploitation that they enable is not specific to tech or to music or to entertainment. It's, you know, Uber drivers and emergency room nurses and tech workers and uh, content moderators and lots of other markets look like this market. And the way that we um, make structural change, as opposed to this, you know, just lying down in front of the flywheel and hoping that, that you slow it down, is by finding common cause across all those different sectors. And so to, to kind of go back to your question, on the one hand, don't assume that you can just rely on the bosses being kind to you out of the goodness of their heart. And on the other hand, uh, understand that solidarity and collective action, particularly across multi-sectors, is the way that we'll make big changes. I don't know, Rebecca, you might have a more technical view on, on what those interventions should look like. Look, I think that, I think that was a perfect answer. Um, what we need to do once we understand this as a power problem, right? That's the thing that unites it, um, into a movement. A movement against choke point capitalism is what we need. Um, and the solutions are to find the ways to like widen those, those, um, pipes back out so that we can have freer flows between buyers and sellers. Um, and the way that we do that is by working together. Um, nobody's going to do this alone. I think with that, we can kind of bring to a close the 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 the, the free episode right now. There's so much more it's for us. It's the free to one. It's the, oh no, this is not trash future, Corey. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, so I I I just implore everybody listening um, to grab this book, Choke Point Chat Capitalism. 
It's it's fantastic. Uh, if you listen to TMK, then this is the book for you. There were many instances while I was reading this where I was like, in a slightly different world, this is the book that Ed would have written about uh, antitrust and about monopoly and monopsony. Um, and you know, in this world, uh, this might be a companion uh, a companion book for the the book Ed will write. Write the book, Ed. Write the book, Ed. Write the book, Ed. <laughs> well, I feel I, if I can write a book that Ed would have written, I feel very proud of myself. So. Oh, oh, you're very flattering. You're the one that you, I don't know how you do it, Corey. I really don't. I just, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sleep is overrated. Yes, grab a copy of the book uh, and then and then uh, uh, send Ed regular reminders to write his book um, on on Twitter at Big Black Jacobin. Uh, no. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank. It, it just remains to be said. Uh, thank you, Corey and Rebecca, very much for coming on yeah, to talk about much. the book. Um, it was a joy to read and a joy to talk to you both about it. Um, just real quick, where can people find you and your work? Um, I'll start with Corey. Well, uh, I'm uh, Doctor O on Twitter. That's Doctor with an O W at the end. And Pluralistic.net is my blog, newsletter, RSS feed, podcast, Medium feed, Mastodon feed, Tumblr feed. I'm the last one on Tumblr, uh, and so you can find it all there. And um, the book uh, Choke Point Capitalism is from Beacon Press. Uh, it is in finer bookstores everywhere. Uh, and we are going around the world and, and talking about it. By the time you hear this, we'll probably be on the road uh, talking about it. It comes out September 27th. And I'm at uh, Ghibli, uh, G-I-B-L-I on Twitter. Um, and I want to mention that we've got these really really incredible videos that our producer Greta Rubinstone made for this, like a little animations to explain some of the more complex concepts. Uh, we've tweeted about these um, and would love people to to check those out and share those as well. And we're also running this Kickstarter at the moment, um, which is sort of a kind of a direct dig at Audible and um, we're running a few little stunts around that. So uh, keep an eye out on Twitter. That'll just I be winding up. We can reveal them. I think, can we reveal them? Maybe we can reveal them uh, yeah. by then. <laughs> yeah, they'll be live by then. So the book's not on Audible because Audible has mandatory DRM. But we do have the chapter about how Audible steals like crazy from artists. And we turn that into a standalone Audible exclusive book and let them put DRM on that. And that's the only part of the book you can get from Audible. Uh, and so we don't know yet whether they're going to like uh, chicken out and refuse to list it. Uh, either way, we're gonna we're gonna uh, they 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 have ten business days to post it. We're gonna do a posting about it. And then we also smuggled the chapter about how awful Spotify is to artists onto Spotify as a Spotify exclusive podcast. So we're gonna be we're gonna be dropping both of those. And then there's the book book that uh, Corey mentioned earlier. Um, we were trying to think of like you know like this is you know the, the 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 swag for a book is pretty regular, but we're like you know what's the what are the high rollers one? And Corey came up with this amazing idea that we will take out a couple pages um, from books antitrust paradox and mark them up in red pen, just with basically pure snark, uh, <laughs> occasional little bit of law professor uh, humor. Um, three people as of time of writing have actually bought those, uh, <laughs> much yeah. of my delight and horror. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great.
Amazing. I mean, th- this is absolutely the best, like, guerrilla marketing uh, and 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 uh, com- companion merchandise for a book I've ever seen. I love it. Um, he, we, he's got a fail son who runs his publishing, like Robert Bork Jr. <laughs> I really hope he threatens us. Oh, my God, it'd be awesome. <laughs> it'd be a real, like, Barbra Streisand effect where the, yeah. the numbers for your book will just go through the roof if if Bork Jr. comes after you. Um, yes. I mean, so, you know, a, a peek behind the curtain for listeners, we're recording this uh, a few weeks before the book comes out, but I'm currently looking at your Kickstarter and you have, I, I'm very happy to say, blown through your initial goal of about 14,500 Australian dollars. It's currently sitting at about 123,000 Australian dollars on Kickstarter, which is just really great. And I think really promising to show um, that there is a, a lot of support, a lot of kind of grassroots and, and actual um, reader support for, for this kind of work uh, that goes against the, yeah, the digital rights management regime and all of that. So, um, uh, we'll have links to all this in the episode description. Of course, everybody go kick in some money for the Kickstarter, order a copy of the book. Um, and while you're doing that, you can find us at the, at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Catch you on the premium feed until then later.
Kill.